Welcome to the second in West Nottingham Academy Student Environmental Council series of climate change podcasts. Um, the World Won't Wait is the name of our podcast series because we're talking about the challenge of climate change. Today's podcast is Those Who Can Teach Climate Change. And I'm here with a group of West Nottingham Academy faculty who are going to share their thoughts, uh, brainstorm, converse about what it's like being in the classroom with high school students of the generation who will be taking the lead in the world with this enormous challenge um, becoming more and more prevalent in our lives every day. Um, I, uh, as the Director of Sustainability Programs and Curriculum here, uh, I I feel like climate change is the overarching challenge under which all other environmental challenges rest. We have to get this one. <laughs> so I'm going to turn it over to the teachers. They'll introduce themselves um, and please enjoy our conversation. My name is Christopher Gardner. I'm chair of the history department. My name is Tracy Ramey. I'm director of international programs and ESL teacher. My name is Tommy Fabian. I am math faculty. I'm Rusty Eater, history teacher. I'm Emily Alexander, Mike Cairns, Environmental Sustainability Fellow. Okay, Christopher, why don't you take the floor first and just throw your thoughts out there and, and let's get this conversation going. As an historian, I have studied and uh, worked with students on a number of moments in global history, world history, when the environment plays a major role in economic, political, social change. So we talk um, about some events, I mean, I focus on European history, so for example, uh, it's pretty clear there was a global cool down in the 16th, 17th centuries, which was also a period of notable violence, uh, religious wars in Europe, um, the conquest of the Americas, and some of that likely driven by environmental change, uh, the struggles for subsistence farming, things like that. When I move into a more modern period, I can't claim to know a lot of the science. I'm dependent on my colleagues to work with students on the uh, hard scientific material, but one of the things we, we do talk about all through the year is the uh, interplay of technology in society. So we look at the fact that in the past when people have dealt with environmental issues, they've had limited technology, so there's a limited technological cause to the problem and there's a limited technological response. Whereas today, so much of it is driven by our technology that we have to figure out ways for that same technology to help us respond to it. And as someone who thinks about this, that seems like a real struggle for us. We, we love our technology, it does so much to make our lives better. That same technology puts such strains on the environment and we're gonna have to en envision ways to use that technology to help us out in the environment. And if I can follow up on what Christopher said also as an historian, getting them to understand the genesis of these problems I think is a big part of it. For example, in the freshman humanities course, uh, we start with the five themes of geography, and the fifth one is human environmental interaction, which takes it on a very basic level, but it sets a theme that they can then start looking at whether we're continuing on in the Western world, the African world, the Asian world, and eventually I get to see them in U.S. history, and getting them to understand that fundamental relationship, I think, is one of our big challenges so that they're then curious about it when they hit other cultures, other epics, other events. I think that um, going back to the technology point, that we have to like start to think of how are, how are we going to use that technology to, you know, kind of make things better and improve on certain things, um, like calculus, for example. We talk about optimization. You know, how can we optimize a product 
to use less packaging and less plastic and, and things of that nature. So I think we need to take that, you know, on the STEM side, being a math teacher, you know, we need to kind of take that and, and evolve our thinking um, in terms of the technology aspect of it. And um, as the ESL teacher, I, I do also teach ESL history, um, global and ancient. And a common theme that I bring up and that the kids start to pick up on their own is when people can't feed their families, when people can't, they don't have clean water, they can't grow crops, um, major violence and upheavals come because of that. And it's just a common thread that we then can connect back to the environment and how droughts and lack of water and lack of clean water can can lead to very violent um, events that we could very well see ourselves a part of if we can't sort out the climate change. Um, so just in the first round of comments, so major things that you all brought up, one is technology got us into this, um, and our relationship to technology, our dependence on it, and technology absolutely must be part of what's going to get us out of this. Um, how do, uh, secondly, how do cultures, and Rusty, this is what you were going after, what are the cultural relationships to the environment that lead to um, decisions on what technologies human beings are going to embrace and evolve? Well, I think part of it, uh, and again, it's coming from the history background, we always seem to try and solve today's problems with yesterday's technology. Uh, it's a truism that history teachers know, you know, the war is fought with the most current weapons and the oldest tactics, and we don't, we don't know what we have at first. And by that I mean part of it, uh, when dealing with the U.S. history, and the first people, the first Europeans who come and settle here, thought they landed in a garden of Eden. Uh, it must have looked pretty much like paradise to them. And so they have this concept, well, this is always going to last. It's never going to go away. And bit by bit, we evolve technologies, whether it's the first industrial revolution with steam, then with oil, because it's there. And we start using it before we know exactly what to do with it and how to deal with it. And I think today we have much the same problem. We're having to solve a technological problem with technology, and there's an inherent conflict for our kids because they live and die with technology. Mm -hmm. and, and the fact that this technology is not going away. You can't take the club out of the caveman's hand. We're there. We're going to be using this technology. So to me, the approach is to try and get them to understand the consequences so that we can begin to anticipate consequences rather than deal with them after the fact, which historically has been what humans have done. Right. And that goes back to just to, um, I want to, um, if Tracy and Tommy, if you guys can elaborate, so we've got two things here, and you guys kind of, the, the, the conversation in the environmental community, the absolute um, idea that it's, it's time to panic. It's time to understand what you were saying, Tracy, about the consequences of what drought and deluge and horrible weather events and migrations are going to bring us. And of course, um, David Wells' new book, basically that's what he's saying, this is an emergency, it's time to panic. Panic kicks in our, our, um, our panic response and makes us sharper, more innovative, more focused on solving a problem. And then Tommy, you brought the other side of it is, well, we, we can't panic people, we have to look for solutions. Um, we have to direct our students in terms of 
you know, these are things you can do, so these are things you need to embrace. So I'd like to throw that out for a minute. You know, the how do we talk to our, our kids in the classroom in terms of the urgency of this and what it will, what it is resulting in and can result in and how it will impact them and where they can feel empowered and not just desperate and forget it, there's nothing I can do. Well, from an ESL perspective, I do a unit every year that is based entirely in practicality. I'm not, I'm not asking them to panic. I'm asking them to learn a little bit about what's happening. So they do, they read articles about what's happening around the world. And then we watch videos and we read blogs about regular everyday people just doing regular everyday things that don't seem intimidating. Because I think if we're just like, um, if we come at them like, and don't get me wrong, it's a huge problem and I want them to take it seriously, but if we come at them like, and they think only the big stuff is how you can solve it, they're gonna not notice or pay attention to the little tiny things that they can do, like unplugging their electronics. And so when they start to read, like even just unplugging my electronics, states how much energy I should be doing that. And we focus on those tiny little things because my kids are 15 years old and their capacity to embrace that is limited because of their brain development. So I, that's where I come at them with. It's just, we watch these blogs about these people who are like zero waste and they're like, oh, I could do that. I could buy that. I could still have the nice shampoo, but I'm buying it this way and not this way. And so they feel less like they have to change their entire life to make an impact. And that to me is what I do. I think that having that sense of urgency is a good thing because, you know, we say the best intentions come from necessity. And I think having that along with, you know, kind of the small victories of every day of how we can, you know, kind of go at this piece by piece, I think it's important to combine that with the sense of urgency that you were talking about a little while ago, Virginia, um, you know, that, that we need to look at this right now. Like, this is something we got to look at right now and, and take care of right, right now. And, you know, trying to get that and implement that in the classroom, I think having that sense of urgency is definitely a good thing. And yeah. At the same time, we almost have to be a little bit careful. Um, Kevin Moe wrote a wonderful song called Victims of Comfort where he talks about this. And we, we deal with that a lot with the kids that we have. They're so accustomed to this. Sometimes I worry, and I've seen this happen over the last couple of decades in teaching kids, if, if you panic too much, they either shut down or they just go the exact opposite way. They become reactionary and say, oh, that's, that's, that's all nonsense. I don't believe it. So balancing it by our own examples, and then, like you were saying, the little stuff. Uh, right. You say the little things that they can do. So they begin to see that it makes a change. I think is an important part of the approach. Uh, I'm gonna just suggest two things. I get to work with kids kind of, in my mind, at two angles. As an historian, we look at the past and we study events, like I had mentioned earlier about the sort of mini ice age. And one of the dangers of that, when you're kind of new to history, if you find it interesting, is you can get complacent because you're like, oh, we've had these things before and we survived them, so this one can't be that bad either. I mean, we made it through the 18th century, we'll make it through the 21st, right? And so you do have to add a, I don't, you don't have to add it, but you have to make it clear that each one is unique. Each crisis has to be solved in its own way. Ours is different because it wasn't a series of natural cycles that nature could deal with. It's an artificial imposition of technology that nature can't deal with that we're dealing with now. So it's, you know, even though it might have happened in history, it's always different. And it's different now than it was when we've had these other issues. 
but I also teach uh, ethics and I have taught religion classes at the school. And there, if I, if I read your question properly, Virginia, that's when I really am interested in how young people perceive um, kind of an in interior pleasure and interior happiness of their lives. And similar to, to Rusty having taught for a while, I'm sh I know when I was a kid when I got the new pair of soccer cleats or I got the new whatever, it was so neat and so exciting. But I also had teachers who often suggested ways to be happy that didn't invite, in, involve buying something. And certainly my mom and dad, who are not you know, liberal tree huggers by any stretch of the imagination, they would also talk about the fact that there's happiness in life besides owning stuff, besides buying stuff. And I do wonder, our, I think our kids, like when you sit them down and make them think about it in an ethics class, they'll respond and they, oh yes, I agree, that's great. But as soon as they step out of the room, the whole culture tells them, you're only happy when you're buying something. Yeah. You're only happy with the new thing. Uh, you can't be with the, the, the cool people without it. And 98% of their lives, that's what they're hearing. And to try to ch get them to challenge that present economic, uh, ethical message that they're getting is a, is a challenge, but they do respond to it. At least in the short term, they're like, oh yeah, I would be happier if I could hang out more with friends, if I didn't feel this pressure. But they compartmentalize it. Yeah. In your classrooms, this is a very good thing. Yeah. And, and then outside, they're not, they're not, we haven't found a way to get them to carry that message down the hall. No, we are, we are the, a lot of teachers are probably the Cassandras of the culture. You know, <laughs> please listen to me. I know this is going to happen. And the rest of the world just spins on its merry way and not paying attention to us still. I, I agree. I mean, I think all that we try to do in the classroom is, you know, to teach the kids about historically and presently what's happening. But it is, you're right, it's a, it's a culture, an economic culture that is very difficult to overcome when they're being bombarded 80% of the day by ads and social media that tell them this is what you buy and this is what you need. And that is, I think, I mean, and it's one of the reasons I try to be thoughtful and, and try to keep my purchasing to a minimum besides the fact that I'm a little cheap, but um, <laughs> is, is, is a culture of stuff and how do you combat that? I don't know that you can combat that necessarily, maybe not in a history class or math class, but maybe in a, a more community-wide, social, emotional, learning type of way where we really work with our kids to talk about purchasing and happiness and belonging and what does that all mean because at the end of the day if they're at the mall buying 75 bags of stuff they don't really need at H&M you know because they can get seven t-shirts for $20 you know then at the end of the day it, it may not matter that I've we've worked to unplug our appliances at night I've just exchanged one problem for one that's even bigger I don't know but I agree that that is a huge we've got to connect component. them to the rest of the world I think that's a big part of it for our kids. They're not connected to the people for whom seven T-shirts would be a godsend. Or the people you know, who make the seven T-shirts. For seven 50 cents an hour in right. Vietnam. Right. right, exactly. They're, they're not connected to that. that. That continuity is missing from their thinking process. If I can really quick, I think part of being at a boarding school that really benefits our kids is that our culture 24-7 is sustainability. We've worked so hard and Virginia's worked so hard, and Emily's worked so hard to build such a great sustainability program that it's most of what these kids know. So there's, and you know, being at a boarding school, there's less of an outside influence. So I think I would argue that, you know, our culture here at the school really helps them ignore some of that, not all of it, because it's always great to have a new flashy thing. 
but I think our culture here at the school and being at a boarding school where that's you know our culture 24-7 really helps us out. But connecting that they, they may say, look at what we do with composting. We compost, we're so great, but I've just ordered $75 worth of products from Amazon that are being delivered. And having them make that connection between, between, well, yes, we're doing this, but what are you, like, there's a connection between that. Absolutely. And I think that is the connections that could be made in our next step. They feel like they've done their penance by doing the compost. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, 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 the... The I and, and this is you know it's an ongoing project. I mean, as you're as you're all making clear, this this we are up against an economic machine, such as the world has never known in 150,000 years of human beings. You know, it's, it's a couple of thousand years old, and it is it is just heated to the point where the species has lost control of what it is, um, and even between, like you were saying about your parents not being liberal tree huggers, but they still had they had a sense you know the depression era generation that the world war ii and post-world war ii generation had a sense of value you know what was valuable and then we hit the 50s and the in the 60s when you know plants and essence of machinery you know we're going to build it so it lasts just long enough and then it'll break and they have to buy a new one and oh let's make let's invent you know plastic cups that you can throw out instead of having to put your glass dinnerware and we became the throwaway culture and it has and now we're so invested in this like you say I need the seven t-shirts now all I have to do is I don't have to get the car and go there you know just punch the numbers in and the order and it shows up at, yeah and it shows up at the door and this is a massive thing we're up against but I do think um, you know we're fighting from our back we're fighting from the mat against this one but I do think, as, as Tommy was saying, as we build our sustainability program here and we keep focusing on the language of sustainability, as an English teacher, that's, that's really vital to me. The idea of continuing saying, we need to sustain the earth that sustains us. And then explaining what that looks like. It isn't just composting, it's what we buy and how we buy it. The idea of reciprocity which goes hand in hand with the idea of responsibility. You know, there's a reciprocal relationship between human beings' survival and the earth, and that creates a responsibility for us, for ourselves. You know, that we, we don't use the words, oh, we're saving the planet, because the planet's gonna be fine. <laughs> we could get lifted off the planet tomorrow and the planet would thrive, um, but we're not gonna thrive without the, the, the clean water and clean air and land that we need for food. So it's a matter of, of pounding that message home continually. And, and we do have kids who come back and say, I was home and I just couldn't deal with the fact of throwing my food in the garbage. It did, felt wrong to me. Or, you know, oh, I was at that person's house and they had plastic water bottles. I mean, they're, they are that, they start to, like you say, we're a boarding school and we can focus on this and they start to invest themselves in, in this, what you were saying before, Christopher, this ethic and what you were saying before, Tracy, these are individual acts and maybe they don't have an impact except that they're making you into that kind of thinker and potentially that kind of voter and potentially that kind of leader. Um, but we are truly up against it in terms of all of the other feedback that they're getting through their phones, from their friends, across their computers every second that they're not with us. And that, that's where, uh, I mean, the tip of the needle, a politician famously said, all politics is local. The greatest movements have begun small scale 
even the greatest political movements. They start with the towns, the cities, the, et cetera. And really, that's what we're trying to do here. Because we're not going to change the Chinese government, the American government, the whatever government overnight in terms of their attitudes towards manufacture, uh, disposal, et cetera. What we need to change is the habits or are the habits of the individual people who come through here so that they eventually spread that change and it works up the food chain. I think it's the only way we can make this successful. We have to work from the bottom up. I think there is, and I'm not, I'm not presuming, I don't want to suggest it has to be a kind of institutional religious answer, but having to, having taught ethics here for a few years, stepping away as a historian and unfortunately for the plan of the podcast, is that there does have to be, I think, a real ethical reconsideration of what we do. I myself, I consider myself, I tell my students this all the time, I'm a Marxist historian. If you don't understand the economics, you're not gonna get the rest of it. But I'm not really a Marxist in the sense that I think capitalism could save the environment. I think socialism could save the environment. I don't really think it's the economic system per se that's gonna do it. If we, as human beings, are capable of understanding the power that we're wielding, that economic system encourages this or that behavior, right. but no one economic system is gonna save the problem. And responds to this or that behavior, particularly capitalism and socialism. So in terms of what you're saying, if we can convince our kids to change their buying habits, that economic system will change in response exactly. to the market It'll forces anyway, to, right. to, that, are, that are changing. Mm -hmm. And that's really, going back to what I was trying to say before, that's where I think we can have the most effect. If we can get them to change their thinking at their level, because eventually the market will respond to that. Now I know we don't have a whole lot of eventually right now, but yeah. practically I think it's the only way it's going to work. I think it's that investor that you use, Virginia, like when, when they invest and take ownership in it, it's easier to see those things once they have a little bit of skin in the game, for lack of a better term, but you know, it's really about that ownership and investing in what we do there. I, and I, just a really quick anecdote on that. Last year when we went down to the House of Delegates to talk about our food waste program, and the kids were really disappointed because the chair of the Environment and Transportation Committee pretty much said, okay, well, thanks a lot, see you guys later, and kind of brushed them off. And, and yeah, and, and, the, and his assistant who was in the room with us came right out and said, no one's going to listen to you. You really need to get a lobbyist. Oh, <laughs> and I, and it, was such, it was such a disappointing message for them to hear. And then this year, because of the success of our program and our community outreach and the fact that we tell people what we're doing and we have the partners out there in the, in the farm community, our kids were asked to go down and testify because we have a delegate here, Delegate Cassily, uh, working with the farmers and with haulers and different people who are trying to do the right thing with food waste mm -hmm. and they wanted our kids to come down and talk about our program so you're right it, it takes it, 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 it starts and it takes time and and the kids saw firsthand from last year to this mm -hmm. year the determination to make the program a success last year no one wanted to hear about it and this year they're being asked to talk about it down at the at the House of Delegates. So someone can share it with someone else and someone else and go somewhere else. And, and right. And right. Well, that's one of the reasons why, too, I, I do this little unit. And, and granted, I will fully admit um, it has room for growth. And I hope to pilot another unit this summer with my um, summer program. But I want to give our international kids a little bit of background because I don't know where they come from, what is ever taught to them about the environment. So one of the purposes and objective of the unit is just to give them a background into what are the issues of the world, 
what's being done about it. And then hopefully my hope is that when they leave and they've made a plan of what they're going to do, that they carry that with them wherever it is that they're going. So if they're going back to China or the Dominican or Russia or wherever they're going, that they take that with them and maybe start something in Shanghai or Beijing where we know some of the worst air pollution exists. I mean, there are some days in Beijing that you dare not leave your house without a mask on. And even when I was in Seoul, that was the case too. Like people were wearing masks and it has a certain level that you have to wear for protection. I want our kids to go back and start solving that problem too because they're going to get sick and tired of of having to do that and they're going to really get sick and tired when they have their own children who have to live like that. And, and hopefully the they figure, take... It'll be the kid who figures it out in Seoul that then leads to like Southeast Asia, right. Asia, the world. You know, right. It comes up with a solution that then can be applied across a host of different I, I just, I'm sorry, Christopher. I just wanna, I wanna throw back in there because we're, we're gonna be winding down time-wise in a couple minutes. I, I wanna throw back in there the idea, like everything we're talking about is, is true and awesome and we, we're all in agreement on these different ways of moving kids. But I wanna throw that sense of urgency back in there. I mean, we have reports out now, climate change reports, uh, many and varied, you know, the IPCC report, the United States own report, um, talking about 10 years, talking about a 10 year timeline to keep the temperature from going above two degrees Celsius warming. We, and and we're, we're talking about that at 10 years. And so we're talking about, and then we have, you know, young politicians like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, we gotta go all out, Marshall Plan, whole thing, you know, how, how does, when we're talking about all these other things that are all very vital and imperative and important, how does that sense of timing fit in? Well, I, and I, for me, I think it, the challenge there is different levels. We probably do need leadership, corporate, political leadership to be kind of in panic mode. Uh, I, to be honest, and I, I, I kind of get the impression um, uh, Rusty, maybe Tommy had a similar idea. For the kids to panic, I think could, I don't want to say it's counterproductive, but unfortunately they're going to have to live with it, but because they didn't, they didn't create it, I don't want to instill in them a sense of, oh my god, it's all over, if you make it to 25, congratulations, and it's going to suck. I want them to, to, Im to imagine that the world has been and can be different. So like I was saying with economics, I think for anybody, a kid in Seoul, a kid in, uh, in Beijing, a kid in Baltimore, your world is like everything. Everybody does it the way you do because that's all you know. And the great thing about WNA is we have kids from all over the world and they almost accidentally, while they're chatting to each other, go, oh, you guys do it that way. I've never heard of that. We do it this way. It's interesting. You do a different thing. And to me, if, you could, if we get our kids to imagine, if that's the right word, to envision that, yes, we have a problem, but that problem hasn't always existed and we've solved problems and we can solve this one and I need to start thinking about this, they'll be engaged with it over the long term. My, the thing about you know, getting the, the urgency to kids that does kind of worry me is, as Tracy said, they're kids and I don't want them to go, oh my God, my parents have destroyed it and I'm just gonna run away and live the next 10 years when it all burns away anyway, because that may not happen. And if you haven't been thinking about, I wanna pressure my leaders to panic so they can do stuff I have no control over, but I want to pick up the trash in my neighborhood and I want to convince my family and friends to do composting, 
then I think we got somewhere. I mean, I was just reading a couple of days ago. I wanted to ask you if you had heard about this. Some young chemists have come up with this stuff that you filter air through, and it absorbs the carbon, and it falls out as dust pellets. Then you burn the dust pellets as yeah. clean fuel. Yes. It could take out millions of tons of coal of CO2 out of the air. I mean, that's an amazing imaginary, uh, envisionary leap. Like, can we find a way to make a chemical reaction to produce a solid? And if it does, can we burn that? I mean, I'm just like, holy cow. Yeah. Well, I think the other, the other side of the coin we talk about, certainly wanting to energize and make them understand the fear, is so often they tend to react every time we say, oh, take this very, very seriously. They sort of go the other way. You know what I mean? There's a reaction against, sort of like the the overreaction of back in the 60s of all the political issues there. And they get radicalized, but sometimes they'll go this way, sometimes they'll go that way. And so that's where I tend to think that setting the example, um, making weaving it into what we do every day so that it becomes a part of their lives is our most successful approach. I think that's where being a younger teacher for me gives me an advantage. Because I don't know any other way how to teach except for in this context of, you know, we have a, a problem to solve and we get, we got to solve it in terms of climate change. Um, so, you know, I think having that sense of urgency is probably how that, you know, invention got created. And then we need, I think we need to just keep pushing, keep pushing. Yeah, I, th I, think, I think you make a useful distinction between urgency and panic. I think that's a, a, a useful distinction out. between having people freak out and we can't do anything about it, oh my God, and feeling a sense of, you know what, we gotta get active, we gotta, we gotta do something, we gotta do it now. So as we run down to our last couple of minutes, I just wanna throw one more idea on the table for you, to, for you all to uh, address uh, along these lines. So yeah, I, I, we look at the history of the human race and we are incredibly creative and innovative and we're amazing. I mean, we are such a dichotomy of, a, of being a giant mess and just being <laughs> incredible and beautiful and capable of producing music and art and, and this invention that you're talking about, Christopher. So we have the capacity to fix this, but there are those human beings who are so invested in not in, in not worrying about our children's future. I'm, we have these corporations who are so invested in the status quo that they are fighting against the potential for this innovation. And, and how do you talk to your students about dealing with that status quo? It has to start with their daily purchases, what Tracy was talking about earlier. Do you really need the, the newest, latest, greatest iPhone? Do you need it this year? You need seven pair of shoes. I mean, I, I go back to Christopher's comments uh, with the Marxian approach, the economics. I think those businesses, some of them, will be forced to respond to it if we can convince enough consumers to change their behavior. If you look at the history of the automobile in America, after the, um, the oil crises of the 70s, American cars had to completely reconfigure everything they did because the Japanese were kicking their butts because they built gas-efficient cars. And I think they will respond if the consumers, if we teach the consumers, our consumers, to demand that from them. I don't see them changing any other way because they're just too big. Yeah. And I have, uh, this is contemporary political issue, but uh, this started under, I, I don't remember George W. Bush himself. I was in Texas when he was governor, and he didn't really talk like this. He changed when he became president. But towards the end of his uh, presidency, you heard this often, and you certainly hear it under Donald Trump. This notion that you know America shouldn't be fooled by this. We have to our strength lies in with these old materials and with the old 
I mean, they don't sell you old, of course, but with uh, you know clean coal and all that stuff. And that really infuriates me because to me, America is like the greatest possibility to be innovative enough to try something new, to reinvent itself. And I think if we, even though I tend to agree with most everybody here that real change will come from the bottom, if we had a president or a leader who doesn't even say you have to do X by Y, but just says our country is gonna be able to achieve Y over the next few years and I'm gonna encourage us to do Y, I think we could do it. And we got to the moon years ahead of schedule. But when I hear a politician like, oh, you know, it's, it's tough, it's gonna to cost us money, we got tons of money. Well, money is not yeah. the issue. It's just where are we putting that? Where are we going to put it? it? Where are we going to put that money? We are yeah. more than creative enough right. to deal with it. Right. Right. And I think too, and this I don't teach this by any means, but I think it's something that's always on my mind. And I guess in small pieces, I try to teach it. Is one is reflection, teaching kids to be reflective about their actions and their behaviors and their their morals and what they believe in, but also activism and advocating. I feel like that is an area of education that boarding school has the access to the kids to do that, but we just don't. And that's not a criticism of us in any way. It's just the fact is we've got a lot on our plate and a lot of curriculum we're doing. But I think that is a missing piece and it's showing up in a lot of different areas, but it could be very useful here is advocating and even activism. And, and it doesn't mean we tell them what to be an activist for, but it, it teaches them, if you have a belief and you feel passionate about something, then here's how you stand up. Here's how you can you know, work with your government. And granted, keeping in mind, we have kids from all over the world who have different government systems that may or may not respond positively <laughs> to that. But at the same time, being teaching kids a little bit about standing up for what they believe in. And I don't know how we work that into the curriculum and I don't know where it comes in or how we can do it or where the time comes from, but I have felt for some time that that reflection and you know advocating and standing up for what you believe in is something we are not great at doing and have room for improvement. I, I'm gonna jump in and say, I'm, I wish I could clap. I, sh I don't wanna clap on the microphone, but. <laughs> um, and I will say, that I absolutely posit they have to advocate and they have to be active and we are having a crew of teenagers coming in during Earth Week who are part of what's called the Sunrise Movement and these are the kids that were on TV that were in Barbara Lee's office and were at Mitch McConnell's office and they're high schoolers and they're they're going and they're saying we can't vote yet but you are going to hear our voices. Um, we're really for primed our, for it. Yeah and for we're our Earth for Week it. we're also going to be looking at the, the group of students and, and there's, there's I, I can't remember the exact number who have brought a lawsuit against the United States government mm -hmm. based mm -hmm. on the right to have a future. And um, um, half of them are above voting age and half of them are below it. Um, and then we have Greta Thornburg, I, I think that's her last name, I always get her last name wrong. She's 11 years old, um, standing in silence outside the Swedish parliament um, to, to protest. So our Earth Week is focused this year on bringing that information mm -hmm. to our students because you are a hundred percent right they need to they need to feel empowered mm -hmm. they need to feel yeah. they need to do all these things that that you all have brought up but they also need to feel empowered to have a voice to actually advocate for their own futures and and I think that that's a huge piece of this but it's just empowered inspired inspired they, they have to yep. they have to want to yep 
So, so last word, yeah, Tommy. Yeah, I, I think part of that is you know being able to produce, be able to show something. Like, you know, I think part of activism is you know we have this great composing program. Look at it. This is something we've done. We're doing it right now. Right. As opposed to just you know kind of communicating it. You know, we have things right. we can actually show. Right. And I think you know continuing to go that route, you know, really helps that help, helps us out in terms of activism. Okay, so we are drawing to the end of our time here. I just want to say thank you to you all for this great conversation. Hopefully we've provided some food for thought for our colleagues and uh, in other places. Um, so keep thinking, everybody. <laughs> our next uh, podcast will be focused on innovation and technology and what place that is going to play in uh, solving this problem. So. Um, watch out for podcast number three. Both our podcasts so far can be found on the environmental stewardship page of uh, West Nottingham Academy's website. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite platform to stay connected to the podcast. If you like what you hear, rate and review to join the conversations on climate change. West Nottingham Academy would like to thank Armstrong Cable for generously donating our podcasting equipment. <laughs>